Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon alongside St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Barden Co-Recruitment in partnership with District 4. This podcast will explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century. Someone pulled me to look towards them and, and it, it, it was the biological mum and she pointed at me and, and she held my chest and she said, oh, you look after your sister, I cut your throat. And it really scared the living daylights out of me. It's now time. This is the Community Safety Podcast. Community Safety Podcast. With Jim Nixon. Today, the Community Safety Podcast concentrates on young people in care and reforming the care system. My guest today is ex-Olympic athlete and world record holder, Fatima Whitbread, MBE. Thank you for allowing me to share your platform with you, Jim. Fatima was in care for the first 14 years of her life and as an ambassador for the charity Action for Children, along with her own campaign as well for care system reform. Welcome to the podcast, Fatima. I'm so pleased that you're able to come on today. And I guess I'll start by sharing a little bit about my backstory. So I was abandoned as a baby and some would say left to die. Uh, a neighbour heard a baby crying in a flat and hadn't seen anybody coming or going in a couple of days. So she called the police, who came and banged the door down and rescued that baby, which was myself. And I spent the next six months in hospital with malnutrition and nappy rash. And in, during that period of time, I was then made a ward of court by Hackney Borough Council. And I spent the first 14, next 14 years of my life in, in, the, in the care system. So the first five years was spent in Hertfordshire in a children's home there where there were 25 other children. And during that period, there was very little known to me about why I was there. Had I got anyone special in my life, a parent, a mother, um, I had no visits, um, especially no, you know, uh, birthday um, cards to indicate that there was somebody out there. And I can remember with most of the children were always constantly emotionally disturbed. So there was a sea of emotion going on in, in the home and, and we always used to play in the front room and it used to face the um, the car park. And anybody that came into the car park, I'd always say, is that my mummy coming to, to, to get me? And, of course, all the children felt the same about that. I mean, it was a very difficult time, I think, for, for children uh, living in the care system because... As I say, back in the 60s, it was all about children should be seen and not heard. Very little was explained to them. And everything was what I call um, communal in terms of clothing and toys and uh, for perfunctory routines, you know, um, no real love and passion for the children in terms of, you know, the fact that we weren't picked up and, and, and nurtured properly when our emotional needs were not being met. So it was a very difficult period of time. There was actually a point in your time in care where you actually did meet your natural mother and some of your siblings. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? At the age of five, um, the matron of the home, um, she called to me uh, from the top of the um, staircase and she said, Fatima, tomorrow morning, nine o'clock, be in the reception area. She said, because you are going to be... Uh, taken to by your mother with a social worker to your new children's home where you meet your half-brother and sister. And I started thinking about this, and it's quite a lot for a child to process. You know, I started thinking about this, and I, I was thinking, 
well, I didn't know I had a mummy or a half-brother or sister. And why am I being moved from this home? This is where my family is. These children are my family. And it was was quite difficult um, to sleep that night. And I remember getting up the next day and I was down in the front foyer with my brown paper bag and the one item of clothing that was uh, given to me. And I sat there looking at the opaque window, glass window at the front door, and I could see this pink Cerisi movement. And as uh, the matron opened the door, this very strong woof of of perfume came in and a rather large lady with black curly hair stood talking to the matron and I could see she had a gold tooth at the front. And then standing behind her, not one time did she look my way, and then standing behind her, uh, was a mousy coloured lady in a little duffel coat and she was full of the joys of spring, smiling away at me and chatting away to the, to the matron and I thought, oh, that must be my mummy. Because you see, what happened to him? I mean, children's perception, you know, that was no different for me. That was my perception of what a mummy was going to be, you know, a happy, smiley, yeah, loving sure. sort of type uh, of a person. And, um, of course... The biological mum never said words. She never made eye cut contact with me in all that time. And all the way down the journey to the, the new children's home, obviously for me it was, um, it was a, an emotional uh, journey and I cried all the way. And I remember when I got to the children's home, the auntie came out to meet us and she said, now Fatima, run along, go through the, the kitchen area there, she said, and go to the back garden and you'll see all the children. And off I went and I can remember this little tug on my clothing and as I looked down there was a young girl there looking up at me and she said oh you must be my half sister and I looked and I said oh yes okay I must be then because <laughs> I, I didn't really know what to think <laughs> and so she said let's go and play on the climbing frame where all the children were playing and I can remember I was climbing up the stairs and all of a sudden I felt this big paw across my chest someone pulled me to the, towards them and and it it was the biological mum, and she pointed at me, and she held my my chest, and she said, "You look after your sister. I cut your throat." Really scared the living daylights out of me. It was very scary, and and both the children ran to her, and then they started talking to her in the mother tongue, and then I realised they knew her, and her, obviously had lived with her, and I I didn't know them at all, and it, and it made me feel very insecure. I was frightened. Did you stay there with your siblings then? Were they also in care or did mum then take them away after that meeting? No, obviously she then took them back with her and then I started yeah. to question why was I brought to this children's home when... It kind of felt like she was a little bit going there under duress to take you to the new children's home. It kind of... Yeah. That's how I'm kind yeah. of feeling. No, yeah. Anyway. I actually... You're like, getting that, you, putting that you across. saying that, that's, that's actually probably what it was. And I've never really thought of that, yeah. Jim. So, yeah, you just made me think and transported me back to that place where, you know. Kind of feels like there was some kind of, although there was a war court, there was some kind of consent involved yes. or she something. She had to be there with the mm. child. Yeah, you're probably right. Did you see her again after that? The uh, social worker uh, that I had, um, had said to me that there was, um, uh, you know, they wanted me to try and be integrated back into the family and that I should go back and live with her. And I was petrified because of what happened in the garden. And I said, no, 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 sure. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And um, and they said, well, we're trying to get the family together. You'll be fine. It'll be lovely. You'll be have a mummy again and, you have an, and it'll all be okay. And I sort of like was very scared about the situation. And I thought this isn't, I didn't feel, 
the energy and the vibration of it all just didn't feel right to me even at that young age. And the worry of it throughout the period of time between me learning that with the social worker and then the actual eventuality of it, her coming down to pick us up, she came down to pick pick me up um, with the two children and and when we got halfway down the road to the bus stop, she's poking me in the ribs with her elbow, reaching for something in her bag and then she stuck a half a crown in my hand because that was what it, half crowns was back in the day. And she said, we don't, we don't want you off, she said. And then, and then the kids said, yeah, we don't want you, we don't love you. And that's kids for you, you know. Um, they didn't know any different but... Yeah, and basically that was what I was my 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 one and only sort of visit um, or supposed visit as a, a young child. How did you feel about like the way that she treated you? And I, I appreciate what you're saying about the siblings, but how did you feel? Well, abandonment, a sense of loss and neglect. I mean, I already had all those um, triggers, uh, which uh, um, and traumas that were going on within me anyway. And all that did is high, high, heighten that feeling of being uh, dumped, of of not being wanted or loved or cared for. And you know, I was no older than about six. With a lot of kids today, Jim, I mean, they do they arrive in the care system with a particular set of uh, issues. You know, they've been abused or they've they've um, suffered um, greatly. Uh, you know, in the in the family home. And of course, they've got to learn to deal with that. And it's never never easy. You know. Um, to help these young children to understand. Because as we know, a lot of the children today are suffering with mental health issues. You know, um, there's quite a few of them that, that at the age of 14, um, about, yeah. they say about 50%, 75% that. That, that mental issues established at the age of 24. So it's quite frightening, really. Now, when you look at it, I mean, there's 4.2 million families today that live in poverty. There's about 800,000 families living on the food banks and we've got uh, 105,000 kids in the care system. No wonder, is it, you know, with the, the poverty levels that they're going up and up all the time. And then I think the most important thing I'm trying to say here is that we've got a shortage of somewhat 10,500 around about that uh, foster parents that would open their hearts to the opportunity of helping these children by opening their home and allowing them to to come and live with them in a safe and secure place, you know, and a lot of these children want that. They need the security, they need stability, they need the love and, 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 and you know, guidance of, of, of families, you know, which uh, most conventional families have. You're listening to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Today we're talking to ex-Olympic athlete Fatima Whitbread about reform in the care system. I picked up on what you were saying earlier when you first went to the second care home that there was um, sort of aunties, which were like 72-hour sort of care workers yeah. that come in. And yes. I picked up on when I was doing my research about Auntie Pete. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the impact that she had on you. Well, it's like all children in the care system. I mean, they've, they've got to have somebody who they can connect to, somebody who's very special to them. And Auntie Ray was that person for me. I mean, she was my bright, shining star. And um, Auntie Ray would always come and wake us up in the morning and uh, she, I'd call her the tickle monster because she'd come <laughs> and wake us up and she'd humanise us, you know, and, and good job she did because otherwise I'd still be there now. <laughs> she was such a wonderful person, you know, and I, I, there wasn't much I wouldn't want to do to try and make Auntie Ray smile or be happy or proud of me. 
And she just got us kids. She, we knew she understood our flight in life and we knew that she'd got our backs. And for me, it was, uh, you know, you know, she was a, a really special person. And I remember picking all these daffodils around a children's home and doing, doing that, I, I would go to the top of the staircase and I would, I would wait to see Auntie Ray where she would come from and where she would go to. And I would, uh, I would look and I'd see she'd come from the end of the road and she lived on the corner. So I'd uh, pick these daffodils and I went down to the end of the road and I knocked on the door with these daffodils behind my back. And when she opened the door, I presented them to her. I said, will you be my mummy? So she said, oh, fats. She said, look, she said, come round the back. She said, let's talk about this. I thought, oh, I'm in trouble now. (laughs) (laughs) So I went round the back and she made me a cup of tea and we had some biscuits and we had a chat. And she said, look, she said, fats, here's the thing. She said, I can't just be your mummy. She said, I have to be mummy to all those children. There, she said, I can't always be there. She said, but you're always there. She said, so why don't you be there, mummy? She taught me in giving you a receive. You know, and that's exactly what I did. I would always call out any injustice that were were happening within the home. A classic case back in the 60s and 70s, they were very young, the house parents, and they were there just for the job. So they were never there really to understand the needs of those children, you know, uh, asked to be born. Um, But what they should have a right to is a safe and happy childhood. For me, it was really important to be able to give the love and security that these kids so desperately needed and in giving it to them, I received it too. So I learned some very important lessons from that in giving you receive. And I also learned that to swivel the lens. So I wasn't looking inwardly all the time. Always look at other people's do, perspective get too. stuck in their mind and find yeah. it really hard to process everything. Um, and uh, not grow up as a victim. Somebody that would get an enormous amount of pleasure in, in being helpful and helping others. And I think this is the problem with a lot of our young kids today. They become very vulnerable. They're, they're, they can get preyed upon um, if they fall in the wrong hands. And also, you know, we need to give them a focus, a task. As Fatima's UK campaign, I'm bringing together partnerships so we can build a, a, the power of sport. Because as a young child growing up in the children's home, sport was my saviour. And that was the one thing that I found, you know, that kept me from falling into trouble all the time because I was constantly out playing sport with the school, you know, after school practices in all the team events. And I just found that it was so much easier for me to be attached to something, have a sense of belonging and and, and have fulfilment and self-worth. And a lot of our kids need that in the care systems, you know, because at the end of the day, um, you know, they can easily fall foul of the law. And then our criminal justice, of, uh, you know, that it becomes a real problem. Looking at the police services, for, for example, I mean, they, they, they get to know who in, in the area, you know, that these most vulnerable young children in the care system need support. They need the opportunities like this so that they can focus and they can learn about life skills, about discipline, about self-worth about building connections with people and understanding, you know, about stickability. It's, it's very important, you know, just being in, living a life generally as a human being can be very challenging. So that without all the skills and being streetwise is another thing and then falling foul of the law and then being vulnerable to pray because they're, all they really want is lots, of, they want to be loved lots and, love and, and support. And, oh, yeah. Based on what you were just saying there, Fatima, you know, 
mentors are so important, aren't they, in that early formative mm-hmm. years? You know, it's the right people coming along. And, yeah. and as we know, you know, from your time, I think well, you, you've already alluded to it, you know, that people could be can be preyed upon, you know, and we're still yeah. seeing that even today. Through my lived experience, obviously, um, emphasise and relate to the public and, and, and build a bigger awareness, a bigger platform for these children so that they can be seen and heard. You know, it's, uh, it's so important to give them a voice uh, in the care system to create, like, collaboratively and um, cohesive, meaningful partnerships between different agencies so that they can and organizations so that it can be involved in in helping to develop our young children you know yeah you know, they're our futures your nation's future you know these young children and not only that we're looking to try and help them because one day they'll want to have a family of their own and we don't want the history repeating itself what's your plan then fatima how are you how are you going to go about it it's working in partnerships it's working in yeah. collaboratively together working with partnerships now building better communities and safer communities by um, allowing uh, the uh, corporate parenting, like the local governments working. And this is nothing yeah. new. I did it years ago when I ran my sports marketing company with Chafford 100. I actually built a development program in the southeast area with the schools, the clubs and the local governments. So what we're doing is a similar thing. It's building partnerships with local governments, care sector, yeah. Um, and foster carers or residentials care for children and and bringing the services, the police involved as well because it's about building relationships and partnerships and, 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 and forging, you know, a, a much nicer, kinder uh, community for the kids to know who the police are, police know who the kids are you know, and for them to be more like of a friend, somebody to turn to when they need something and talk to somebody, um, being able to sort of connect as a, like a role model and, and respectfully, you know, both parties would understand the needs, the greater need for, for you know, building partnerships. And uh, through sport, as I said, is an opportunity for the kids to learn a little bit more about themselves, challenge themselves, learn about focusing, have a sense of belonging learning the vital skills that they will need to prepare, you know, for themselves for the outside world, which they're already living in. And society has it today. It's tough anyway for most kids and even in conventional homes. So it's not about being discriminative or it's getting rid of stigmatisation. It's working together collaboratively and it's also having, you know, early intervention to stop these kids falling foul of, of the law and falling into crime, which is, as we all know, it's going to cost a whole lot more to get that put right. A lot more. That's yeah. music to my ears. That is Fatima. It's exactly the way that I think, see things and early intervention, looking after young people, giving them mentors. Brilliant. I just, I just can't agree with you enough. And I think it can be done. It should be done. It should, because yeah. we've all learned over the years, it's, it's, it's a broken, it's a broken society and the world seems to be struggling. And I think a lot of that is because everybody's got their own agenda. Everyone's fighting to survival. And the actual fact, the, the one thing that really has proven over the years in many ways, and if not COVID proved this too, working together and sticking together, so true. you know, supporting one another, that's where the real success comes from. I mean, back in the day, there used to be like um, the community used to be a safe haven for many people, you know, that used to be their family. Can you count five people on your hand or who you can turn to? It's true. 
nowadays everyone it's a, everyone's for itself and it's um it's proven not to be working so we need to start to be more sensible about this situation not just for uh, most vulnerable kids which is what i'm fighting for life generally has been you know a human being for all of us we need to be able to connect we're sentient beings we need to feel that we're our needs are being held we're valued and you know we, we we're loved i picked up on what you just said actually about covid you know in, we all hated that period in, in in our lives but we probably got to know a lot of our neighbors during that period because we all came together because we were all in it together and i think you're absolutely right you know if we all did more together and helped each other i think communities would be so much better in the 21st century i'm ambassador for action for children but i've also just launched my own fatima's uk campaign and one of the things that i want to do is create a legacy for future generations beyond ours and that's so key because so so you know, key. i would like to think that you know beyond my years that I've contributed to making the world a better place, you know, especially when you think about these young kids that they're, they're almost like forgotten about. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable, really, this day and age that, that you can, I could be saying that. It's all a little bit patchy and, and not enough. What we need is the power of one voice, you know, to bring that together. And that's what I'm trying to do, bring the four nations across the UK together, have a summit once a year where they can discuss all their the, the goods and, and, the, and the bad and the different about what it is in the care system and the children being at the, in the middle and forefront of that and using that platform also at the summit for the kids to come and talk to those care sectors to tell them exactly and voice what it is that they want and what they how they see it and how yeah. they're experiencing it. Because it's an old saying, an average coin saying about give the children the voice, but what is what are they trying to tell us? We need to listen to that. We, we need, need to, to understand what, what, what they want and what we can do. And if we are a power of one, then, then we've got far more chances of penetrating our government with that request and implementing change uh, than trying to do it in separate little groups. I just see so many organisations sometimes, they're all, they're all in it you know, to try and help like you're talking about, but they all work in silo and I just think that yeah. approach is just so much better. Yeah. You know, it will work, yeah. it really will, but we've got to, like, you know, mm. well, it's going collaborate to be, more. Scotland, Wales, Ireland, England, yeah? North, South, East, West. I mean, whatever way you look at it, you know, um, for me, I mean, I call it the bright shining star because Auntie Ray was my bright shining star and, and she taught me a lot and I've kept that to this day. Um, but what I want to do is be able to be a bright shining star for those other children those and, and bringing that summit together is going to be, you know, the change forever for these young people, for future generations. And, and why wouldn't you want that? Because um, the care review for Scotland, Wales, Ireland, England, are, they're all different. For the four um, children's commissioners to come along as well um, and share that same platform and I'd share in, like, in Scotland, it's the who uh, and uh, the promise, who cares and the promise. And, you know, and it, it's different for every for every nation, home nation, but... They can learn from one another, support one another, share ideas with one another, go back to their, they go, talk to their uh, children's commissioners as well, then present them with what they want to see what, how, what they want changed and then go to national governments and then present that to them. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of it, you know, that there's no reason why they shouldn't work together in that, in that way. As it stands, there are a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. There are. But, but there's... 
that it's no, it's not moved on that much in some respect from some things from my time back in the sixties. Why should children constantly be moved? Why are we looking at them constantly being moved? We need to to, to look at this um, foster care system, vet it much more strongly. Look at the misconceptions where, where people are not coming forward because they feel they're too old or they have their own children. So you know, why would they want to why do, would that? You do that? Mm. Yeah. And 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 of course, some people think oh, I'm single. I can't I can't do that. Actually, you can. Percentage is already people are, are fostering as single, and even fostering if they've got a disability as well. And and, and all this about oh well, I work. How can I? I mean, that's another misconception. If I work, I can't uh, uh, foster. You well, can. Lots of parents work. <laughs> I don't know where these misconceptions have come from. You know, open your home, open your heart give these children what they really need, and that's this love and security of a stable upbringing. You know, there's a lot of young children out there, you know, desperate for the love and security of a family upbringing. Yeah, you know, and like you say, you know, there are, there are adults of tomorrow, Fatima, aren't they? You know, and we've got to you're treat right, them correctly. Yeah, 100%. If you think you're one of those people that would like to, to foster, um, one of the areas you can go to is national foster groups. Uh, go online and check out national foster groups. They'll help you step by step through the process. They'll talk to you about the... Break down um, all those stigmas. Yeah, and also different opportunities that you could go. You might not want to be 24-7. Some kids that are in the residentials or, or foster care are there only for a short period of time yeah. because the mums, you know, are struggling at home at the moment and, and they have to come into care for a little while. So, there, you know, there's lots of different ways to, to support these young children that are needing love and secure homes. It doesn't have to be if you can't manage the 24-7. But I know a lot of good friends also that have been in foster care for years. They've, they've fostered so many children over the years, you know, and, made, and then those kids come back time and time again. You know, that, that's like a, 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 a mum or a dad to them. And, and for, for me also, I feel... Another thing that we need to address is for, especially for our uh, care experience, is definitely why would you want to, at 15, be, be told, you know, that they've got to be prepared to go into independent living at 18 because it's very unsettling for those young people. They're supposed to be at that moment in their time studying, working hard at their studies. And to be then suddenly worried more about, oh, I've got to go into independent living, yeah. what's going to happen to me? How am I going to survive? I mean, for most of them, I mean, I've got a son who's still at home. He's 25. On an average, kids do stay at home until they they're in their 20s, 25, 28, because nobody can get foot on a ladder nowadays anyway with housing. It's really and difficult. It's really difficult. And so why would we want to push these kids out at 18? It's, it's frightening because statistically as well, 33% they're saying end up homeless. Then they become sometimes involved because they can't support themselves. They come, they be, So they become, get dragged into crime yeah, and crime. social behaviour. Exactly, yeah. You're listening to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Today we're talking to ex-Olympic athlete Fatima Whitbread about reform in the care system. I remember at 11 watching Mary Peters in the oh, Munich yeah. Olympics and she won, she won the pentathlon. It's a heptathlon now, but yeah, he won the, the, the pentathlon for Ireland. And I remember thinking, there's something I can do. I can be self-financing. I can earn my money and be, a, you know, somebody who's going to get myself out of this rut. And, you know, at 11 years old, I'm confronting those issues. 
of worry and fear about what's going to happen to me in the future. And, I, and again, you know, I mean, it was through sport, as I said, I met the love of the Whitbreads and then I was playing a netball match at school. Yeah. And uh, it was a cup match. And I remember I told Auntie Ray, this is the first time I would be able to win a medal. And if I won the medal, I wanted to give it to Auntie Ray, you know, because she, she to me was like a mummy. Like a mum, yeah. So, yeah, she was like a mum. So um, as a team captain, the match was going 11-11, 12-11, 12-all. And I was getting mo- mo- trying to motivate my team and making a bit of a noise and the whistle went and the umpire said, young lady, keep the noise down, otherwise I'll send you off. So I kind of turned my back and started muttering and then <laughs> as the game went on, I started going louder and louder. Now, today you would call those motivators. Back then they called them a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> And the whistle went again and, and she said, I've told you once before, if I've got to tell you again, you'll be off. So I muttered again as I turned and her team captain said, Fats, don't, she said. She will send you off, she's really strict. Well, anyway, at the end of the match, we won. Yay. <laughs> and then I said to my friend Alma, who lived in the children's home around the corner, Alma, I said, why don't we go to the local athletic club? I said, uh, you know, it's the end of the net season, it's start of the athletic season and we both love sport. And so we went, We walked about five miles to the local athletic track at Blackshots in Greys. And I can remember our, when Greys we got to Essex. the gate, Greys in Essex, yeah. I can remember Alma went off to the sprinters because uh, I saw this tom, tall, blonde-looking guy chucking what looked like a spear. And I thought, oh, he's nice. I'll go over there. <laughs> and off I walked over to the javelin and uh, run up. And then I sort of bent down to pick up the javelin. And he turned to me and he said, you can't do that. And I said like lots of kids who live in the care system, can be quite feisty and survivalists. I said, well, why is that? So he said, and he turned to the shot put coach, uh, Jack Grinney, and Jack said, no, 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 young lady, put it down. He said, come over to the stand and wait for the javelin coach, he said, and then we'll see what can happen if if, she, if this javelin coach will let you throw. So I sat in the stand toe-tapping, and then he said, oh, here comes the javelin coach. And with that, this mini pulled up in the car park, and as this person walked across the infield, I did oh, it's a double take. That's that same woman on the netball. <laughs> <laughs> what's the, the chances? <laughs> yeah, what's the chances of that? Oh, but she came unreal. over and uh, yeah, she, Jack said, "Oh, Mrs. Oh, he said, Mrs. Whitbread, I've got this young lady who'd like to be, you know, uh, throw the javelin." So before he could say my name, he said, "She said, yeah, you're Fatima." She said, "Well, let me tell you, young lady, any of that cheek you showed on the netball court, she said, you won't be throwing any javelins here." So I kind of cut my hands together. I said, no, I promise I'll behave. And so a few weeks went by and she was saying to me, oh, you've got a bit of talent. You should ask mum and dad to come up. And I just nod my head. Yeah. Then she said to Jack, has Fatima got a hearing problem? Jack said, no, why is that? Well, he said, she said, every time I ask for mum and dad to come up, oh, he said, don't you know, she lives in the children's homes. So with that, the following week, she came up and she had these pair of boots and a javelin. She said, look, I had a young girl that's retired. These boots might be too big, two sizes too big for you, she said, but stuff them with paper. She said, <laughs> here's a javelin. <laughs> yeah, you do, yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever given us anything, Jim, you know, kids, and you just, you just didn't, it didn't happen. Everything was communal, yeah. So this was something very special. And I decided I remember going home on the bus that day. Now, I wouldn't be able to do it now. I mean, the bus driver when the doors open he sort of nodded his head going no and I pointed a spear up nodding my head going yes 
Yeah, he said, go on, get on the back. So you took your javelin on the bus? I took my javelin on the bus, yeah. Brilliant. And then when I got to the, the children's home in the summer season, most of these kids, you know, those that are short stay, go home back home to their parents. Those that haven't got any parents like me, um, you, you're there throughout the summer. And if yeah. you're not involved with anything, even today with these happening with kids in the care system, it's a long old period to be stuck, you know, without anyone, special people in your life or any, you know, clubs, involvements, you know, to be stuck there and not knowing what to do. But for me, I, I made my own luck in that respect because I, I would always be somebody who wanted to go out and find something to do and sport was that for me. Yeah. And, of course, when I got back to the children's home, we had German students because the house parents were off in the summer on holiday. And I said, Ingrid, come out in the garden. I'll show you how I throw this javelin when I'm up at the track. And it took me two throws to get down the end of the garden and I sort of discarded the potato off the vegetable patch here off the spear I said, now move out of the way. I'm going to give it a really big throw. And, of course, I did. I launched it through the French window. Smash! Ingrid's standing there with her head in her hands. Oh, no, you're going to be in trouble. And I said, yeah, watch you. I'm always in trouble because I was quite outspoken. When I say outspoken, I didn't like injustice. I still don't like injustice today. And I stand by who I am, what I am. And, uh, you know, and I stand by my, you know. The... You were like the kid's captain, weren't you? you were yeah, like the, I you was were the, like, oh, the kid's parent. Yeah, yeah, looking after their guardian. As, as Ingrid's words were, I, I was in trouble and I got a month's ban. And that meant, obviously, I couldn't go any after-school activities at school, which was disappointing. I'd often go back on the way back to the children's home. I'd pop in and see Auntie Ray when she was off duty have a cup of tea, that was really special to me, you know, um, yeah. connecting with Auntie Ray. Um, and then I was sort of playing in the garden. There I heard this telephone ring and I pressed my ear to the glass window and I heard, uh, no, no, she can't come up to the track. She's been really naughty. She smashed the French windows. And I thought, oh, here we go. Prior to that call, I'd had a message from a young girl who was in the netball team. And the message was, Mrs. Whitbread thinks you've bunked off with the javelin and the boots <laughs> and you've sold them and you're not interested anymore. And I thought, oh, I can't have that. So I got up about two o'clock one morning. I walked down the stairs and I went into the French bureau where the envelopes and everything. I pulled out my ignorance and airmail envelope and I put, dear Mrs. Whitbread, sorry I can't come to the track, only I smashed the French windows. But one day um, I want to be the best javelin fryer in the world um, and... Uh, yeah, and I signed it and I put Brilliant. Mrs. Whitbread St. Chad School and I posted it the next day. And that's when I was waiting in the garden to see if anyone would ring or anything. And and when I heard that call and, and I heard the house auntie trying to put Mrs. Whitbread off, I was very disappointed. Yeah, Mrs. Whitbread must have been quite resilient because she wasn't being put off. And in, within a week I was back at the track throwing and then she said to me, how would you like, she said, to come to have tea with, with my family? And I thought, well, yeah, that would be lovely. And, of course, when I, I had tea with the family, I met her husband, John, who was my dad, who's late dad now, sadly, bless his soul, and, and my two young brothers now. Well, they were only four and two, two young boys, Greg oh, and Kurt. Okay. And because being, you know, with kids all my life, I mean, it was a natural fit for me to be able to, to easily gel and, and, and connect with them. And then on the way back, he said, look, it's the summer season. How about you come and stay with us for a couple of weeks in the summer? And I thought, wow, that's a wonderful opportunity. So I said, okay. And then it meant, I said, we can still do like the javelin throwing as well. So she said, yes, of course we can, you know. So I was like living with a family, learning about javelin, 
and also learning about what it was like to live in a family. That was something I'd always wanted to do. And I remember at the end of that two weeks, it was quite sad because I was thinking, oh, that's the end now. And, and little Greg, who's four, he said to his mummy, oh, mum, do we have to take her back to the shop? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I laughed and so did she. And then on the drive back to the children's home, it went quiet for a period of time. And then, I, and then she said, um, she said, well, I've been thinking, she said, and, and John, that's her husband, yeah. John and I have been talking, how would you like to come and live with us as a, as a Whitbread? And I was like, really? I, I couldn't believe, you know, uh, this opportunity. And part of me was nervous about that because it's big change. And, and like a lot of children in the children's homes, you know, change is scary. You know, um, you have attachment issues. Uh, because you're constantly um, being moved or you've, you've been yeah, abandoned. All that uncertainty. And so I was a bit concerned. And also, don't forget, I had a really good, uh, what I, I say was my, my chosen mummy, was, was, was Mrs. Auntie Ray. Yeah. And I can remember going back to the children's home and when um, Mrs. Whitbread told the house auntie, the house auntie said, oh, well, um, what are you going to tell Auntie Ray? Well, I don't know. You know, because in my mind I was thinking I don't want to upset her. Mrs. Whitbread said that will sort itself out. And when she left, not long after she left, I was in the kitchen and uh, and the house auntie and with the house auntie. And then Miss Auntie Ray came in, and so she started saying to me, "Well, go on then, tell Auntie Ray what the, what you're going to do. You're going to be le- you're going to be leaving us, aren't you? You're going to leave us." So Auntie Ray looked at me and she said, "Oh, fat," she said. Are you going to go and live with the Whitbreads? She said, well, that's something you've always wanted, a family. She said, and I can't give you that. She said, can I? She said, no, I'd be extremely happy that you will have a family of your own because that's something you've always wanted. It was magical. And we kept in touch, you know, and as I say to this day, how important is it to give children hope? Because with hope, there's nothing they can't achieve, you know. It was the same for me. Uh, as it will be for some of these children. And that's all I want to be able to do is offer them hope that somebody, they're valued, they're seen, they're heard, you know, and they are important. And every every one of those children, both in care experienced and and children in, 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 you know, vulnerable kids that are living in these children's homes, they, they need that love and security. That's really <laughs> so emotional, isn't it? I'm one of the lucky ones, Jim, and that's why yeah. I and fight that's why hard you're so, for so tough about yeah, this. Yeah, this campaign. is my this is my ministry and this is what I'm gonna do to make sure there's a legacy for future generations beyond ours. What I'd like to do is introduce the opportunity of also having a forever friend, somebody that will be a constant in their lives, someone who will be there when they need them, when they're going through difficult times. I mean, we all have it, don't we? My son talks to me all the time. I would talk to him. So why wouldn't you have this for these young children? So why, you know, one of the things I'd like to try and change and make a difference to their lives is, is introducing that, that we, they're properly vetted people that could be, you know, give the love and support to adopt in, in their way one of these children who they connect with and communicate with on a daily basis just to make sure their needs are met or they've got the emotional and mental stability. It's so, so important. You're listening to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Today, we're talking to ex-Olympic athlete Fatima Whitbread. When did you realise that you could really make it in the javelin? What was that moment when you thought, you know what, I'm going to do this? 
It's a long, hard road. I mean, anyone you see who's successful in life, there's always a massive team of supporters behind them, yeah. people that have been involved with them. Um, and for me, it was no different. I used to work exceptionally hard. I mean, when I was 16, I got offered, I was a county, Essex County hockey player. I was the youngest ever to play county for the first team as a junior, playing for the senior team. And I loved hockey, so I continued playing club hockey with, with my mum. And then at 16 as well, I got offered by the Whiteman Cup, the golf fraternity, 60000 a year to play golf. And I was only 16. And back then, you know, that's 30-odd wow. years ago. That was pretty good. Yeah, but it's just a nice game to play. And I remember having to make a decision about that. My mum said, well, what do you want to do? And I said to her, well, to be honest, I said, I've only just been adopted. I was adopted at 14, coming on 15. And I didn't want to leave the family. I didn't want to travel the world as a golfer. I wanted to, to see what I could achieve as a javelin thrower, working with my mum. So mum and daughter, athlete and coach, we conquered the world. I mean, really I did. worked with... Worked with a lot of people. I did my due diligence and what I needed to do with, like, Jeff Capes helped me with, write programs for weights. Yeah, shot putter. Um, yeah, and uh, Willie Banks, the American triple jumper, helped me in my plyometric work. He wrote, I used to study no end of different athletes doing... I used to sprint with Daley Thompson and Verona Elder in the sprints club. I used to do cross-country running. I trained three times a day, seven days a week, and I, and I had two weeks off Some a year. Commit. People don't realise just yeah. what you put in, do they? It's a huge amount. It's a huge amount. I started off as a pentathlete because, like I said, I liked watching Mary Peters. And then I fractured my lower back, and I had to make a decision of how many events that I did. So I stuck with what I thought was the easiest one, <laughs> the javelin. But in actual fact... It's probably the hardest one because, you know, it's, it requires a tremendous amount of speed, power, elasticity. It's an explosive event. And back in the 80s, again, it was East versus West behind the Iron Curtain. I was a bit of a tailblazer, I think, for women. I was the, the highest paid sportswoman um, in British history. I also was voted female sportswoman of the year in the world in 1987. I won Britain its only gold medal. Um, and got the M the MBE by the Queen, the late Queen, bless her, and I was made BBC Sports Personality of the Year. Very rarely do women win that award. I think it was um, Princess Anne before me and then Virginia Wade in Wimbledon. I've really had, uh, you know, a very illustrious career. I won 11 major medals from different championships, and had I not been injured and ruptured the rotator cuff. Yeah. So they had to cut through the nerve box and they had to sort of belt and brace it. And that meant that I lost all the power input to my throwing arm. And uh, I could get back and I got back to about 60 metres, but I was a victim of my own success because having thrown 77 metres, 44 is the world record, beats a long way. It's from one end of the football pitch into the penny at the other end. And I threw it in a qualifying round and I remember everyone saying to me, oh, you got the wrong day. Uh, nobody's ever won a, a broken a world record in an event and gone back the next day and won. And won the gold. <laughs> and won the gold, yeah. And I thought, well, there you go, I like a challenge. And you tell me I can't and I will. And so I, I, I what, you know, uh, relaxed throughout that period of day, which was really hard because constantly uh, every screen around the stadiums or in and around the area at the village, Athletes Village, was showing the world record throw. And I said to my mum, you know, this is like really eerie. 
But I managed to hold on to it. And the next day, I mean, I I won the European title and broke the old world record again. So I held really basically the two longest rows in in the history of the event. And also, you know, beating the great Petra Falca as well. I mean, one achievement, eh? When those, they say those kind of east-west kind of times to beat her and to be on top of that. Yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, they thought, well, this... I mean, my greatest rival was Petra Felka. I mean, I had a really good competitor in Tessa Sanderson, the head-to-head yes, British. Tessa, yeah, of course. But then and Tessa obviously was my inspiration when I was younger. And we achieved a lot in the event, really, when you think, um, oh, in the, for Britain. It was incredible. And then, but, but then I obviously, um, like with Felka, we sort of notched it up a gear or two. And we, we ended up, we were probably 11 metres ahead of everybody else. And we dominated the event for quite some time and held all the stadium records around the world. And uh, had they not changed the women's javelins, yeah. uh, you know, centre of gravity, it still would be a world record. I always felt that you really enjoyed what you were doing, you know. You always yeah, seemed to passion. portray that passion and that fun. You know, you always had that smile on your face and you just were loving what you were doing. And I just love that, yeah. you know. And I think a lot of yeah. people, sometimes they're involved in sport, don't always enjoy it. If you'd have said to me, would I thought that back in the days living in the children's home that my career would have taken off in that way. I would have found it hard to to see it, but at the same time, it was my dream that I wanted. Once I decided that's what I wanted to do, I, I was fortunate that I lived that dream, you know, and uh, the journey is really what it's been about for me. Yeah, it's nice as the medals. When I talk to the kids, they can see the medals. I'm happy for them to try them on. For me, it was all about the the, the self-growth, the journey, and the experience of it. And, and and coming out of that into reality TV has been wonderful as well because uh, when I, I talk to the kids, they all want to see the cockroach that, that you know, I'm a celeb <laughs> rather than they yes. see the medals. And I used to say to them, Jim, I used to say, your mum and dad's remember me as an athlete. <laughs> and now they uh, now I have to say your nans and granddads because it's like you're getting old, Whitbread. You're getting old. But no, I'm using my platform, as I said, my, my lived I can't experience. can't think of anyone better. And that's my ministry and that's what I'll do for the rest of my days. Well, based on your career, if one person can do it, Fatima, I think it's you. For anybody that wants to support me, go on my Just Giving page for Fatima's uh, UK campaign and um, and make the donations because I will be doing challenges. Next year I'm doing uh, Everest Base Camp and that's to support young children in the care system. I'll be doing that as ambassador for Action for Children but I'll also be raising funds for Fatima's UK campaign so that we can get the power of sport and these programmes, the community-based programmes, put on for our young kids so that they can also realise their dreams. You can find me on champ.international1 at gmail.com. Fatima, thank you so much for coming on today and giving up yeah, your valuable welcome. time, but you are an inspiration And as I said earlier, if there's anybody that's going to do this and bring people together and improve the care system, it's going to be you. So good luck with it. If we can help in any way in the future on the podcast, please don't hesitate to contact us. And if you know anybody out there who's got so much money, they don't know what to do with it, tell them to help me to help these kids because that's what it's all about. Support and future generations. Thanks, Fatima. And thank you for listening again 
to the Community Safety Podcast. If you like the episode, please subscribe, rate, and provide us with a five-star review, and we will catch you on the next interview. Alongside support from St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global, and Barden Co-Recruitment, in partnership with District 4, you have been listening to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon.